Okay, so presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. And I am the sidekick, Austin. Yes, he is my sidekick in life and in the podcast. So before we get started, we are going to be thanking some new Patreon. Damn, again. Oh, that was cool, Kelly. Yeah, cool. I learned that from going to dance clubs. Or from watching a movie. Yeah. Anyway, so Christina Rust, Woo! Danielle Harris, Woo! and Crystalline Coy. Woo! Thank you guys so much. Thank you all very much. And today, on this episode of Murder History with Mama Mystery, we are covering a case about... John Robinson. And he actually... This case is from Kansas City. Oh, jeez. This is real close to home. And before we get started, I want to um, shout out Kylie King for recommending this episode. Kylie is actually one of my personal trainers. She um, she does like nutrition and physical training plans. So you can hit her up on Instagram. Her at is at Ms. M-I-Z-Z dot Kai. K-I-A. And it looks like awesome. Kaylee, but it's actually Kylie. And she's awesome. She is very awesome. So anyway, hit her up. Just a little shout out. So thank you for the recommendation. She recommended this case, and she did tell me it was crazy. And, I mean, every case is crazy, but this one is crazy. It's going to be kind of long. So buckle up. Are you ready, Austin? Born ready. Okay, here we go. So John Robinson was born in Cicero, Illinois. Cicero, I'm probably mispronouncing that like I do everything else. So anyway, Cicero, Illinois, on December 27th of 1943, he was the third of five children to a strict mother and an alcoholic father. Not much is really known about his childhood, but growing up, he was pretty quiet and studious. Friends of his remember his endearing smile And others remember him similarly, but recall that when he did talk, it was, quote, to produce an effect that he wanted. He was shrewd. He was aspiring to more than he was capable of, quite frankly, end quote. He told friends and his Eagle Scout leader that he planned on entering the priesthood and would someday work in Rome. So he had these really big aspirations. In 1957, he actually became an Eagle Scout and traveled to London with his group to perform for Queen Elizabeth II. And later that same year, he enrolled at Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago, but dropped out after only one year due to disciplinary issues. So a few years later, he enrolled in a junior college in his hometown to become an X-ray technician, which, side note, that's what my mom did. She was an X-ray tech. Mm. Yeah, anyway, but she, or he, dropped out of that program after only a couple of years. In 1964, he moved to Kansas City and married Nancy Jo Lynch. 
They had their first child, John Jr., the following year, then a daughter, Kimberly, in 1967, and then twins, Christopher and Christine, in 1971. But it was in 1965, after the birth of their first child, that John committed his first of many crimes that we know of, at least. He was working for Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City as an x-ray tech, and nurses and colleagues began to suspect that there was no way he could be a certified technician. He struggled with patients, especially the really young ones, because there is a certain way you have to handle kiddos who don't always understand verbal cues or may be intimidated by the huge machines. And one of the nurses, Josephine Burmel, told the Kansas City Star that they actually had to show him how to do his job and that he was a nice enough guy, but they knew he forged his certificates and diplomas. That's crazy. It reminds me of the movie Catch Me If You Can. Yes, that is exactly what If I you haven't about. seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, go watch it. It's crazy. It's a classic. I think it was made in the 90s. And maybe the early, early 2000s, 2000s, but it's so good. He he forges his way to being a pilot, a doctor, a um, lawyer, all kinds of things. And it's a true story. Yeah, true story. So uh, this dude did that. Yeah, it, it's like, I feel like this whole story is remnant, or reminiscent of that movie, but times 10, because he went above and beyond. So anyway... Of course, he was let go from Children's Mercy, but it didn't take him long before he found a job in a lab working for Harry S. Truman's former personal physician, Dr. Wallace Graham. Dr. Graham offered John a job as an x-ray tech in 1996, and he said that he was impressed by his achievements in Boy Scouts and his extensive credentials in radiology. But John wasted no time taking advantage of Dr. Graham's naivete. He started stealing money from the practice. He drained the office's bank account so much so that Dr. Graham couldn't pay his staff their Christmas bonuses. And meanwhile, John bragged to his coworkers about his new ranch and lake house. Not only that, but John would often have affairs with some of the female staff and patients. He had sex with one patient in the x-ray lab, by telling this patient that his wife was terminally ill and unable to accommodate his needs. Oh, my. Sick. And then flexing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds pretty obvious that it was him that was embezzling the money. Well, and eventually, Dr. Graham became concerned with the financial state of his office. So he performed, or he had an audit performed, of the books, which showed that John was embezzling funds. And he was arrested and charged with stealing $33,000, which... In 2021, would be like $272,000. Damn. hmm In 1969, he was convicted of theft and sentenced to three years of probation since it was just his first offense. But this was only the beginning for John. He went from job to job, never securing a real career in anything other than lying and crime. Between 1969 and 1991, he was convicted four times for embezzlement or theft, and he was barred for life by the SEC for working in any kind of investment business. But these are only the crimes that we know of. We have no idea how many times he convinced people not to press charges or how many of his victims were maybe too embarrassed to come forward and admit that they'd been taken advantage of. But over time, his lies got bigger and bigger. He forged letters of recommendation from leading officials in the area while misspelling some of their last names. 
He conned a friend out of $25,000 for a phony hydro grow business, claiming that his friend would get a great return on his money so that he could pay for his dying wife's health care. His friend's wife was dying, and he convinced him that if he invested $25,000 in this business, it would give him a big enough return that he could pay for his wife's dying health care. Lost that shit. Money. Yes. He told people he helped fund Sylvester Stallone's second Rambo film. I mean, his lies simply knew no bounds. But behind the lies, he continued to cultivate an image of a family man and an upstanding citizen. He became a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. He would even dress up as Santa for the kids in the neighborhood during the holidays. And just when you think... The lies and deceit can't get much crazier. In 1977, this man (laughs) created his own Man of the Year Award that he gave to himself for his philanthropy and desire to help the developmentally disabled. He even forged the names of the Casey mayor and a Missouri state senator on this award, and then he used that award to get on the board of directors at a local handicap service organization. And his first rule of business while he was there was to organize an awards luncheon for this Man of the Year award. He forged letters from the mayor to letters of the or, or to. Um, Okay, I have to think about how to explain this. He forged letters from the mayor to the organization and then letters from the organization to the mayor to get them all to this luncheon, right? So he kind of just set them all up to come to this luncheon to celebrate him. And then when they announced the recipient of this award, John Robinson, John gave his best Taylor Swift impression when he feigned complete shock and humility as he accepted the award. So this guy's got like two complete different personalities going on. Yeah. A complete fake life and a real life. Yeah. You know, you know how people say that a person who's a compulsive liar, like they lie so much, I think they believe their own lies. Mm-hmm. I think that's like the law of attraction and you are what you become and you, what you think about grows and all that. I think that happens obviously in good, successful things. You know, you think about success and you, or whatever you want to accomplish, you manifest it. You also believe your BS that you tell yourself so much that this guy probably faked his whole radiology thing, but has convinced himself in some weird way that he is a radiologist, yeah, that he is a good capable. person. Yeah, it's. Uh, I just think it's interesting because like you, people think manifestation and like like law of attraction, what you think grows, but it's not just in good ways. Like it's this guy is the epitome of a, a two faced, complete different person. You know? Yeah. I don't know if that made any sense. No, it it totally does. And it's scary because, I mean, that's a really dangerous person. Somebody Mm -hmm. that can, that believes their own lies so strongly that they deceive so many people and on such a high level. They get so into, on a high level professionally and everything, Mm -hmm. but also they get so into their lie that they're forging fake emails back and forth and that's like, that's just nuts. forging signatures and letters and at the same time you're misspelling names. Like, Mm -hmm. It's just crazy. And all that's going on in the background to what you're perceived as to the public as this good person. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. wild. You're trying to be the man of the year. Mm-hmm. So two weeks later, when the event was covered in a story in the Kansas City Times, the people whose names he forged read the story and came forward with the truth, all realizing that they had been scammed by John. So the newspaper ran another story blasting John for his lies, 
and it caused his kids and wife great embarrassment. John, however, being the narcissistic sociopath that he is, was completely unfazed. I was going to say he soaked it up. Yeah. So earlier we touched on the infidelities of John Robinson, and he was known to have these sexual liaisons with patients and co-workers. He was horrible to his wife, Nancy, becoming physically abusive with her, and he would go out to bars and try to pick up women while she stayed home with their babies. He also began starving their dog and their two horses that they owned, and his infidelities reached a new peak in the summer of 1982 when John propositioned one of his neighbors, which resulted in a fist fight with her husband. So it's like, he's kind of just, he's reaching all these new levels of just being a completely shitty person. And now it's like, you're not only hurting your wife, but you're hurting your kids. You're hurting your pets. You're hurting your neighbors. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you're getting out of control. Later that year, a colleague of his introduced John to a woman who was looking for a divorce. John told her that he could be her attorney and get her a divorce if she paid him $200 and gave him her car. So she did, and she never got the divorce. Oh my gosh. So yeah, seems like things are just kind of beginning to unravel. The crimes, lying, and deceit are really starting to reach new lows, and it just makes you wonder how far this man is willing to go to get what he wants, whatever that is. So in 1983, John's brother Don and his wife Helen had been trying for years to conceive a child. They were unsuccessful in those efforts and resorted to the fact that maybe it just wasn't in the cards for them to be parents. But John, knowing about these struggles, told them about a contact he had with an attorney in Missouri who handled private adoptions and that John could act as a liaison between them and his attorney. So Don and Helen gave John $2,500 to give to this attorney in Missouri. And then he just kept Don and Helen at bay, promising them that a baby would come along and then it just never happened. So his own brother, and he's like preying on their vulnerability, something that is incredibly important to them. Mm-hmm. And again, a huge chunk of money. So anyway, in 1984, John is now 40 years old, and he hires a girl named Paula Godfrey, who was 19 at the time, to work as a sales rep for his firm. He picked her up from her parents' house to go to the airport because he told her that she had to go away for training. Days went by, and Paula's family hadn't heard from her, so they grew concerned enough to file a missing persons report. They told police that John picked her up for the airport, and that was the last time they saw or heard from her. So then police go to John and question him, who, of course, denied knowing anything about where she was. And then just a few days later, Paula's parents get a typed letter in the mail with Paula's signature at the bottom, thanking John for his help, telling them she is okay, and that she did not want to see her family. Fake letter. Well, at the time, the investigation into her missing persons report was closed since she was a legal adult and there was no evidence of foul play. And if they have this letter, I mean, they can't investigate it if there's this letter, right? So that summer, John rents a duplex and turns it into a brothel. He hires a woman named Linda Stevens-Jones to run it and to find other girls to join in. The brothel specializes in BDSM, And John was the, quote, slave master of this cult. This is crazy. Yeah. 
Early the following year in 1985, using the name John Osborne, John went to a local women's shelter in Kansas City. He Again, met, preying on people's weaknesses. Yes. He met Lisa Stasi and her, or it might be Lisa Stacy. I'm not sure. So anyway, I'm sorry. Lisa and her four-month-old daughter, Tiffany, and promised Lisa a job in Chicago, an apartment, and a daycare for her baby. Lisa was only 19 at the time, and she was separated from her husband, who had just been deployed in the Navy. She was young, broke, and desperate, making her a perfect target for John Robinson. On January 10th, Lisa called her mother-in-law frantic and told her that they, quote, they told her that she was an unfit mother and that her mother-in-law wanted custody of Tiffany. The mother-in-law on the phone with Tiffany, or I mean, I'm sorry, with Lisa, denied this and said that Lisa's last words on the call were, here they come, and then she hung up. She was never seen or heard from again. And then two days later, Don and Helen Robinson picked up their beautiful four-month-old baby girl, complete with forged adoption papers, with two forged signatures from two lawyers and a judge. John told his brother that the baby's mom committed suicide in a domestic violence shelter. They had to pay an extra $3,000 to John to give this imaginary attorney to complete the adoption process, and Don and Helen were none the wiser to the fact that this was not a legitimate adoption. My gosh. So Lisa's family filed a missing persons report, and just like in the case of Paula Godfrey, John told them he had no idea where she was, but knew that she had run off with a man named Bill. And then just a couple days later, the family received a typed signed letter in the mail alleging from Lisa, or allegedly from Lisa, saying that she was fine, she wanted a new life, and the case was closed. So hold on. You said this earlier whenever you said the, the letter. You said now they can investigate it. Why can't they investigate it? Because... Or why don't they, I guess. I'm sure they can. At the time, I mean, this is in the 80s, and when they have a letter that seems to be from somebody and it looks like a legitimate letter... They just close the case. They just, they can't investigate it. Makes sense then you say that, like the 80s, before cell phones. Right, before they can really track somebody down. Before the internet. And maybe the laws have changed since then, where it's like, no, we need to have real proof that you are, in fact, alive. I'm sure you can't just write a letter down when somebody's missing and then, well, turn it off, we won't... But that's nuts. Well, and that's what he did. So when he got these girls, he did it with both Paula Godfrey and with Lisa. He had them sign these pieces of stationery saying that you're going to be really busy in training, so you're not going to have time to communicate with your family. So just sign these letters, and we'll type them up letters to let them know how things are going. And that's how he got their signatures on these letters. But they were just blank pieces of paper. Right, with signatures at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Well, don't ever sign blank sheets of paper, everybody. Yeah. Lesson learned. So in March, John's probation officer realized a pattern that John was questioned in two similar disappearances. So he brings John in to reevaluate his probation. And while he starts to probe for possible probation violations, he begins to suspect that John is heavily involved in an underground BDSM sex industry and that he probably ran a string of prostitutes that specialized in BDSM through this duplex brothel that he was renting. So his probation officer, Steve Hames, gets help from the FBI to find a woman by the name of Teresa Williams, who was living in an apartment that was funded by John Robinson in exchange for being his own personal prostitute. 
She told them that not only had she seen him with a gun, but that on one occasion he took the revolver, pointed it at her vagina, and threatened to shoot her. Apparently this was after she had met with like a client at the brothel and either the guy wasn't satisfied or she didn't like perform well enough. And so he burst into her room and threatened her by pointing this at her vagina. And yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. So she told investigators that he also supplied her with drugs and that he was setting up a plan to move her to the Bahamas. But in reality, they knew he was probably going to kill her and then tell people she disappeared to the Bahamas. All of this was enough to revoke his probation. So John was arrested on March 21st of 1985, and he was sentenced to serve seven years in the Missouri Department of Corrections. But then he won his appeal and was released in the spring of 1987 after serving two years. And they also had to put that girl, Teresa Williams, into hiding because they feared that he would come after her. Like witness protection program? Mm -hmm. That's a crazy system. We should do a show just on that sometime. Yeah. So that June in Overland Park, Kansas, Catherine Clampett was 27 years old when she left her child with her parents in Wichita Falls, Texas, to find employment in Kansas City. She was hired by John Robinson, who promised her a successful career and a whole new wardrobe, but she was never heard from again. In 1987, John was arrested and convicted on more fraud charges. It seemed much easier for him to get away with murder, or at least these women's disappearances. I mean, we know now it's murder, but than fraud. But either way, he began serving a four-year sentence, and while he was locked up, he suffered from multiple strokes that left his face paralyzed on the left side. And also, while he was in prison, his dad died, which will come up later. So in 1991, he befriended the prison librarian, Beverly Bonner. Beverly was married to a prison doctor, but after John was released from prison, she left her husband and moved to Kansas to work for John. No way. Beverly was receiving alimony checks from her ex-husband, and when she moved to Kansas, she arranged for these checks to be forwarded to a post office box. So after she moved, her family never heard from her again, but the the checks kept getting cashed by... John Robinson. And this continued for several years. At this point, John has discovered the wonderful World Wide Web. He stumbled upon various social networking sites and chat rooms and started advertising himself as a slave master, looking for women who enjoyed being the submissive partner during sex. One respondent was 45-year-old Sheila Faith, whose 15-year-old daughter, Debbie, was wheelchair-bound due to spina bifida. After communicating back and forth, John offered to pay for Debbie's medical expenses and give Sheila a job. So in 1994, they moved from Fullerton, California to Kansas City and immediately disappeared. But for the next seven years, John Robinson continued to cash Sheila's pension checks and Debbie's disability income. See, this would never fly now. No, it would never fly now. Isn't that so interesting? Yes. How the like, crime would the crime kept working back then? The checks just kept coming. Mm-hmm. I yeah, it's nuts. I've heard people describe the '90s as like one of the deadliest decades, and you have to wonder like. 
how true that is just because of the lack of like science and lack of like technology, right? Like there's so much more now that helps us, you know, crack cases and solve crimes. Mm -hmm. But back, back then you had to, I mean, there were these long waiting periods. Like they just didn't have it. They Mm -hmm. did not have the resources. So yeah, he could get away with a lot, a lot more. So in December of 1995, John had collected so much money from cashing these checks that he was able to put $95,000 down on a house for his son on Big Pine Key, Florida. In his downtime, John would sit in front of his five computers, scrolling and trolling through BDSM websites while his wife was at work. Because, yeah, she's still with him. She has no idea. No way. The original wife? Yeah. No way. All through the prison and everything? Through it all. She was still with him. So in 1997, John is now 53 years old, and he meets a woman online named Isabella Luica, a Polish immigrant living in Indiana with her parents who were both university professors. Hold on. So his wife doesn't know about the brothel duplex? or No clue. She's just completely in the dark of everything. Yeah. Has no idea. All right, so this Indiana person, go ahead, sorry. Yes. Okay, so eventually Isabella tells her parents that she was dropping out of school to move to Kansas City where a rich entrepreneur offered her an internship, but she failed to tell her parents that she had also signed a 115-item slave contract with John. So after she left, she only communicated with her parents via email. A slave contract. Yeah, apparently that's a thing within like the BDSM world, is uh, which stands for bondage, uh, discipline, sadomasochism. It's what like is- a, it's a type of sex that's just very violent, and it's like this slave and submissive like. Uh, or I'm sorry. This it's probably like, Fifty Shades of Grey shit that's yes, horrible, exactly. but women read that book and love it. Well, yeah, because when the guy is like actually successful and good looking, it's like it's a And if it was novel. anything else, it wouldn't be romantic. It would be a criminal not, novel. It's an episode on Mama Mystery. No joke. When he's 53 and half of his face is slanted because he's had strokes and he's ripping off all these people, it's an episode But on when Mama it's Mystery. Christian Grey with a helicopter and lots of money, it's the sexiest thing alive. Yeah. Weird. People are weird. Double standard. <laughs> I never fire did get into one. those books. I just, I always joked about that. Like, wait a second. If this guy were in a trailer, it would be an episode on Dateline. No shit. Anyway, so after she left. So, she, wait, she signed a slave contract. She signed a slave contract. Do you, I'm sure not, but I was going to ask, do you know what is in the. I don't. 115 pages? No, no, no. 115 items. So items. I don't know what that means. If that was like 115 rules. Or what? It's a lot of rules. And listen, to each their own, okay? If you want to participate in kinky shit, like, and it's safe, and you want to do your thing, more power to you. Absolutely. When when people are getting murdered, that's when I'm like, okay, this is not okay. But hold on. If you want to be kinky and do your thing, great. But if you're having to sign a contract about being kinky, there's probably something weird going on. It's it's borderline. All kink, no contracts. You should make a sticker (laughs) that says that. God, new sticker. That's Gosh, July sticker. That's crazy. All kink, no contracts. With a whip. <laughs> oh my god! If and we'll somebody... also we'll send the sticker with handcuffs. Oh my god! No, we won't. No all right. Oh, I took it too far with no, the fuzzy handcuffs. It's expensive. I'm not going to be sending everybody all our 80 patrons a bunch of handcuffs. All right. If you're in the patrons, you want to pay extra, we'll send you fuzzy handcuffs. 
Let's go back to the episode. Gosh, where were we? Okay, so anyway, after Isabella left, she only communicated with her parents via email. And John promised Isabella marriage. He bought her a ring and paid for a marriage license, neither of which he actually ever picked up or did. And then in the summer of 1999... She disappeared. Isabella told her friends that she and John were going on an extended vacation, and she was never heard from again. God, that's so sad. So John went on to tell her friends that she'd been caught smoking marijuana and was deported, but he continued to email her parents posing as Isabella. In the fall of 1999, John meets Suzette Troughton in another BDSM chat room. Suzette was 27 years old and a healthcare worker from Michigan, and John promised her $60,000 a year if she would take care of his diabetic, wheelchair-bound father, who passed away while John was in prison 10 years earlier. He promised Suzette that they would all be traveling together, so Suzette told her mom, Carolyn, that she was staying with a man named John Robinson, and she gave her mom his phone number. Carolyn received multiple typed letters from Suzette, but was really suspicious of the letters because Suzette was not a very good speller, and all of her letters were mistake-free, and she also knew Suzette never typed notes or letters to anyone, so she was really suspicious. She became so suspicious that she started calling the number that Suzette left for her, and when she called, John picked up, and he didn't know who it was. I don't think John knew that Suzette gave her gave her mom his phone number. He told her that she had run off after stealing money from him, so Carolyn filed a missing persons report in Lenexa, Kansas. Well, at this point, police are fairly certain that John Robinson is up to no good and that these girls who keep disappearing are likely dead at his hands, but they don't have any proof yet. They just have their suspicions, right? So they start investigating him deeper and begin reopening the missing persons reports that they once believed to be these open and shut cases, right? And now we're to the days of the internet. Yeah, and we're also 15 years have gone by since the first one. So they go to the hotel where Suzette was last known to be staying, and they find surveillance video of John Robinson in the hotel lobby. So they know for certain that he is connected to Suzette, But now what they need is physical evidence. They become more aware of some of his secretive properties. For example, there's a boarded up farmhouse and a few storage lockers that he rents. But they have no idea, or I'm sorry, they have no way of getting into them without cause. That is until they get a phone call from a woman who wants John arrested. So in the spring of 2000, the police tapped John's phone and listened to all of his conversations. And by the way, I'm going to get back to the girl who wants him arrested, okay? It's all going to come full circle. If you're like, wait a second, what does she want him arrested for? Right. So in the spring of 2000, they tapped his phone. They're listening to all of his conversations. One conversation was with a woman named Vicky, who was recently fired from her job as a psychologist, and she was suffering from depression and loneliness. John offered for her to travel from Texas up to Kansas City over the Easter weekend and put her in a hotel. So the police rented the room right next door, and they listened through the walls, wondering if this was going to be like his next murder or missing girl. They listened as John explained to her the master-slave roles of BDSM that they were about to participate in, 
and then they got started. And the police listened on the other side of the wall as they had very rough sex. I mean, they're hearing chains, they're hearing her screaming, but like, it, it was like... Is she, it was all consensual? Exactly. I mean, like, from the beginning, she sounded like she was consenting to it, and then BDSM is very rough, so they had to consider if she was a willing participant in or not, right? Ultimately, they made the decision not to go into their room, and then when the sex was over, John left. But she later called police because he had stolen about $500 worth of sex toys that she brought with her because he told her to, but she had bought $500 worth of sex toys. What are you, what are you buying that's worth $500? That's a lot of money in sex toys. I mean, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I can't even fathom it. I can't even fathom what, you, what $500 would buy you on the sex market. I don't know what the average cost of a sex toy is, but $500 seems like a lot. I mean, Especially yeah. in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. I, like, I had a friend who sold pure romance, and she would do like these pure, pure romance parties, and she'd show you all these different like toys that had all these like machines and like things coming off of them. I mean, I'm just imagining $500, that thing... Better put me on Jupiter. Oh my gosh, Kelly. All right, babe. I'm just kidding. Listen to you laugh at your own joke. Don't pause it. Keep it going. I'm not. Okay, so back to the story. Soon after, another woman... She'd take the $500 of sex toys over me any day of the week. My God. That's not true. (laughs) Keep going. We better keep going. Okay. So, soon after, my brother's like, I'm done. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Soon after, another woman named Gina came from Texas. I don't know why all these women are coming from Texas, but anyway... To Kansas City with the intent to work for John at his business. And Wait, they, so was the lady who called about the sex toys the one that wanted him arrested? She was one of... There's two, okay. actually. So uh. I don't know which one was the one that called, but this happened twice. Okay. So anyway, this woman, Gina, they met on one of those BDSM chat rooms, and he put her in a hotel room where he beat and sodomized Gina and then took pictures of the injuries that he inflicted like against her will... He took these pictures and saved them. She did not want the pictures taken. Then she said that John stole money from her and also stole all of the sex toys that she brought with her. What is he doing with all these? I don't know. I mean, I guess he's probably taking them back to his duplex. Okay. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's my guess. I don't know. But yikes. Ooh. Ooh. So at this point, the police finally had victims who wanted to press charges on John, and with John's arrest imminent, they knew they'd finally be able to get a search warrant. So on June 2nd of 2000, John was arrested at his home. The police brought with them search warrants for his home and his private ranch 30 miles away in Lynn County. That's where there's going to be some problems, I have a feeling. Mm -hmm. They were also able to get search warrants for his storage units. Which are also going to be a problem. Big time. So the first place that they search that day is his house. They don't end up finding anything because, of course, he's not going to keep anything at his house with his unknowing wife living there. What's and his, his kids wife thinking there. during all this? I don't know. I can, I can only imagine. She still thinks he's the man of the year. Well, I don't know. I mean, she's been embarrassed by him before. She's been abused by him. So she probably knows he's kind of a shit guy. But 
maybe she doesn't know the extent of just how shitty he is. For sure, yeah. So, the next day, they brought cadaver dogs to his property in Lynn County. And they started early in the morning, and for hours, they searched the property with no luck. Until finally, around 1 p.m. that day, one of the... Excuse me. One of the dogs hit on two yellow barrels near an outbuilding. And once they opened the barrels, they found the badly decomposing bodies of two white females. They turned out to be the bodies of Suzette Troughton and Isabella Luica. Two days later, the police then traveled to Raymore to search his storage units. They opened the unit and it's full of junk, boxes, paperwork, just random shit is strewn about the unit. But tucked away in the very, very back were these three barrels that were all wrapped. And they were these huge barrels, just like the ones found on the, the farm. But they're those huge plastic drums. Yeah, like like big fuel drums. Yes. Yep. And they're completely wrapped in like heavy-duty plastic tarps. They opened one of the barrels and found what appeared to be a tennis shoe on top of just decay. Like, at this point... <coughs> It's gone on for so long that it's not even an, a recognizable body. Like, mm-hmm. I from the picture that I saw, it almost looks like fuzz. You know, like, it's just been that long, but there's, like, a shoe on top. So you just, you know. Mm-hmm. You just know. So upon further examination, they confirmed it was a decomposed body. So they didn't open the other two. They just assumed that they were bodies in them. They removed the barrels, and the barrels were sent to um, a medical examiner. And sure enough, in the storage unit, they found the bodies of Beverly Bonner and Sheila Faith and her daughter, Debbie. To think these barrels were just sitting in a storage unit and they were decomposing people. And this guy was just, I mean, these were sitting for years. is so freaking eerie. Yeah. Yeah, because he just goes on like living his life like normal. I mean, he's like at some point, this guy entered the storage units, opened up a storage unit. <clears throat> threw a barrel and a body in a back of it, filled it back up, and then went on home mm-hmm. to his wife and kids. That's c- creepy to think about. Yeah. So John Robinson was arraigned on five charges of murder, but the women who have not yet been accounted for are Catherine Clampett, Paula <clears throat> Godfrey, and Lisa Stacy, and her infant daughter, Tiffany. So meanwhile, in Chicago, Heather Tiffany Robinson is about 15 years old now, and she's watching the news. And she's stunned to see her Uncle John's face flash across the TV. Because at this point, the serial killer from Kansas City is making national news. So she goes on the internet to find out more information. And she comes across a site detailing the other possible victims of John Robinson. And she comes across a picture of the four-month-old missing baby and her mother, who she recognizes as herself because she bears such a striking resemblance to her mother. Oh, my gosh. So she, of course, goes to her family, and she's like, you guys, like, this is happening. This is on the news. Her family immediately called the Overland Park Police Department, and detectives travel to Chicago to meet with the family. They tell him about John Robinson essentially selling them a baby through what they believe to be a legitimate adoption process, and they even show police pictures that they have from the day of the adoption with the whole family standing there and john robinson is front and center holding this baby on his knee no way he has this huge grin i mean he is grinning bigger than anybody else is grinning in this picture it's freaking eerie to look at do you have the picture you can put on mom mystery page 
Nobody in that picture had any idea what had really happened. They all thought this was a legitimate adoption. But John Robinson knew he had just killed that baby's mother hours prior to that picture being taken. And he's freaking smiling from ear to ear. So they take a footprint from the teenage Heather. Her name is Heather now. And compare it to the footprint on the birth certificate that they have from Lisa Stacy's files. And, of course, it's a match. Golly, so nice. the trial begins in the fall of 2002 and lasted about six weeks. In October 29th, John was found guilty of every single charge against him, and he was sentenced to death. He remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. Right now? Mm-hmm. Why hasn't he been killed yet? I don't know. How long? So when did he get sentenced? That was um, 2002. Why is he still living? I think with when it comes to death penalty cases, you have to go through all these different process, like appeals processes, to I don't know to, for it to like finally come. So through. where like, where is he incarcerated? Like Scott Peterson, he's been on death row for years. Also, I mean, they don't get executed right away. Where is he incarcerated? El Dorado, Kansas. That's crazy. Which, fun fact, Eric, if you're still listening, um, he, my brother, went to Butler Community College, which is in El Dorado, and I remember going to some of his games, because he was a football player, and seeing the prison from far away, and just being so fascinated, because at the time, I, I, of course, didn't know that John Robinson was there, but BTK is there. Who's and that? I did know that. BTK? Oh, my God. This is why you're on this show. BTK, you don't know who BTK is? No. You guys, I'm so sorry. I feel like I've failed you. So who is it? Well, we're going to have to do a case on him now because I can't just tell you. He was a serial killer from Wichita. I can't believe you don't know BTK. Oh, my gosh. Oh, because I'm a crime junkie, right? Well, I mean, I thought you would at least, like, watch the news every once in a while. Jesus. Okay, so anyway, he's in El Dorado, Kansas. Heather Robinson, who was Tiffany's daughter, or I mean Lisa's daughter, Tiffany, won a judgment in 2007 that would prevent John Robinson from ever profiting off of any future potential book sales or movie rights. And Heather actually went on to do an ABC 2020 special on the case called Soul Survivor. And she detailed how she always got such a creepy, off-putting vibe from her uncle, and that when she found out that he was a serial killer, she felt validated for those feelings. But I just, I cannot even imagine, like, finding out that that's how you ended up where you are. Seeing a photo and recognizing it, and your mom, and this and that, it's... That's so It sounds weird. like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there are multiple 2020 specials on this. There's also an episode of Case uh, Cold Case Files, which is where I got a lot of this information. If you're interested in the resources for this episode, because there's, um, there's a lot out there, I included them on the script of this episode, which you can always find on our Patreon website. So anyway, that is the episode for today. That was a crazy one. If you guys were entertained by this one, give us a review because that was wild. Yeah. And we need to stack reviews. But that was crazy. It was so crazy. And I cannot believe this all happened in Overland Park, Kansas. Another side note. So I went to high school in Shawnee, Kansas, which is like right where all of this was happening. And I went to school with the DA's son. He was in... He was either in my class or a class above me. I don't know. But anyway, when I was watching the Cold Case Files episode, his dad was being interviewed on the Cold Case Files episode. That's just so wild. crazy. It hits so close to home. But anyway, um, maybe our next one will be BTK because I need to fill you in on I still want to do another Epstein episode. 
We'll, we'll get that going, too. We hope you all have a great week. We wish you all the kink in the world without the contracts. All the kink you want. Mama. Mystery. Out. Bye.